Well, we're taking a break from Exodus this morning, and we are looking at John's gospel. Of course, that we just read this account of the resurrection of Jesus. And the title this morning is Seeing, Believing, and this really is a theme that you see come out of this text, is people see things, and then the question is whether or not or to what degree they believe. And that just posed the question in my mind, what does it take to believe in something? What does it take for you to experience? Does it take sight for you to believe something is real? Do you have to really see it to believe it? And I trust in a certain sense, we'd say, well, of course not. I mean, there's all kinds of things we believe in that are invisible. We know they're true. We know they exist, even if you can't see them. Take radio waves or microwaves or ultraviolet rays or x-rays, for example. And if that's not tangible enough for you, well, how about a cell tower or Wi-Fi or Bluetooth signals? I know we depend on those every day. And we know they're very real. They impact us daily. So I think we all know you can believe in things that you have not seen. But why is that an expression? Why do we say those things? Why might we say that? And I think we're trying to say we're not gullible, right? Uh, We're not going to be duped by some sensational claim. Uh, I'm not just going to believe everything I read on the Internet. I I have to really see it. I have to experience it myself that I would believe it. But what if that thing, that claim... It's just something you could never see, like something that took place in history. How could you ever believe it was actually true if you can't go in a DeLorean and travel back in time and see it for your own eyes? Or even those other things we already described, not just even history, but are here right now, Bluetooth signals, Wi-Fi, and etc. How can you know that those things are real, that they're actually there? Well, we see the effect of those things, the mark they leave in our life or in our world. You know, Jesus uses the analogy in John chapter 3 about wind. You can't see wind. It's invisible. You don't even know where it's coming from. But you see the effect of wind, say, especially a strong wind when a tornado comes. And the aftermath of that that will tell you really quickly that you don't have to see something to believe it exists. And, of course, we cannot see, go back in time and see the resurrection of Jesus or even the empty tomb ourselves, and yet we can and we must believe it. Because we will consider this morning the very effects, the mark, the impression, the resurrection of Jesus has had on these people who saw it, that it still even today leaves in the world because what does he, what does he do when he rises from the dead? He transforms. He transforms people, transforms this world. Jesus' resurrection from the dead is not merely the object of our faith, but the fuel for it. So we're going to consider these morning these four effects of Christ's resurrection, that they're going to slay your doubts, if you would understand these, trust these, put them to rest, and at the same time invigorate your faith, or maybe if you're separated from Christ this morning, give you the faith to trust Him as your Redeemer. So let his resurrection fuel your faith, and really in these four ways. And the first is this, Jesus' resurrection confirms our trust in the Scriptures. The truth of the resurrection first does this thing. It confirms their truth that the, the Holy Scriptures are real, that they testify to what's accurate, that they uncover who we are and who God is. And so we'll see that in verses 1 to 10 from John 20 in our 
passage opens early in the morning, Sunday morning, while it's still dark. And the first one noted to come to the tomb is, of course, Mary, Mary Magdalene. (coughs) Excuse me. So let's read verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. That is, despite in Jesus' ministry, his repeated predictions, remember this, we saw this when we studied Matthew's gospel a bit ago, that Jesus constantly, towards the end, he was telling him, listen, your Messiah is not who you think he is. His mission is different than what you thought. This Messiah is going to be betrayed. This Messiah is going to be killed. This Messiah is going to be crucified and beaten. This Messiah is going to be put to death. But this Messiah is going to rise from the dead. Mary surely heard this from Jesus. And yet, understand, as she's coming to the tomb that morning, she's not expecting to find an empty tomb. She had yet to believe that. We know from the other Gospels, she was coming off to finish Jesus' burial and do it right. Remember, he was crucified, of course, on the day before the Sabbath, on Friday. And so, as the Sabbath was approaching in that evening, they had to put him away, take him off the cross very quickly. They rushed his burial. And so, she and a couple other women here came to finish the preparation of Jesus' body for burial. Now, John, in this gospel, he just puts the spotlight just on Mary, and he's focusing on her. But these other women came with her, and as they approach the tomb, what's uncovered, what they see or namely what Mary sees, <coughs> excuse me, is perhaps her greatest nightmare at this point. Someone has apparently robbed the tomb and stolen the body of Jesus. Such that in verse 2, she goes, after seeing the empty tomb, she goes to run and tell Peter and the apostle John. Now, that's who John refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. But that's John. And so Mary runs back to tell them, and then Peter and John, they are on a foot race to go back to the tomb to see it for themselves, to see what's going on here. And again, that's the theme that as you run through this chapter, it's about what do people see? What comes to their eyes? Mary sees the stone and sees it rolled away. While these two men run up and they see that, but then they see more than that. And what they see, at least with John, moves him from doubt to solid faith in Jesus' resurrection. So again, it's a foot race to the tomb that morning, and John wins, probably just because he's a younger man. He arrives first to the tomb, and what does he see? Well, we look to verse 5 now. And stooping to look in, John saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. So John's the first one to the tomb, and understand these tombs were kind of like caves with a big round stone that could be rolled out of the way of the entrance. And so the stone had been rolled away. And as he comes to the tomb, he stoops down to look inside, but he does not go in. And what does he see but these linen cloths? This is what's mentioned. Now, maybe that seems like an interesting detail to us, but why is it here? Well, it proves something to John, something starting to click in his mind. This is maybe not what I had assumed. This is maybe not what I had thought when I saw the grave opened. That is, like Mary probably, when they saw the tomb rolled or the stone rolled away, they thought somebody robbed Jesus' body. These are grave robbers that have taken over the tomb. 
But what's interesting is that the linen cloths are there. See, grave robbers would have been more inclined to leave the body behind and take the linens than they would to take the body and leave the linens behind. Why? Because those linens were pricey. They could have taken those and sold those for a nice sum. The body was just dead weight. They didn't need that. This does not have the look of a crime scene. This is not the look of a grave heist. Especially once you add what they found when they went inside. That is, so remember, John came to the tomb first. He had stooped in, but he did not go inside. But of course, impetuous Peter, you know, barges right in, right past John, steps into the tomb. And what does he find? What does he see? He sees burial linens, yes. But he sees more than that. Verse 7, he also sees, it says, the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head. And note this, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place all by itself. Again, these are clues. This is not a crime scene, right? When the criminals come and rob your house, they usually don't stop to make your bed for you. They're trying to get out as fast as they can. They need to flee, not do laundry. And so it's this bit of evidence that finally makes things click for John. Because John then, it says, follows Peter in, and he sees the face cloth all folded up nicely at the end. And so we read in verse 8, John, he also went in, and he saw and believed. So that was it. The scene, the linens, the face cloth, nicely folded. None of that makes any sense if this is a crime scene, but, oh, I get it now. He's alive. He rose. That's what Jesus had been telling us. This wasn't some kind of figurative resurrection. This wasn't in three days I'll rise in your hearts or in three days we'll make a a big scene. This is, no, I'm serious. I'm going to die and rise from the dead. Just as the scriptures predicted, this is where seeing all of those things, it starts to click for John, such that then we see in verse 9, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. That is, not only had Jesus told them, I'm going to die and rise, but Jesus had been telling them, that's what the prophecies had predicted from the Old Testament, your Messiah was to die and rise. Later that day, it's not here, it's in Luke 24, Jesus is going to take a long walk with a couple guys explaining to them all about what's going on. And he's going to rebuke them in the end and he says, oh you who are slow to believe the scriptures. And what were they slow to believe in the scriptures? That the Christ has to suffer and then glory. That is death and resurrection. The scriptures foretold it all. And it began with that great promise in Genesis 3. After man sinned and he was driven out from the garden... God promised and said, I'm going to send a man to save you, a seed of the woman to crush the serpent's head. But then quickly in the scriptures, we uncover that he is going to be no mere man. It's going to be God coming as a man in human flesh. A son to us is given, Isaiah prophesies, born of a virgin. He is the God-man to come. But then third, we read in the Old Testament scriptures that he is to be cut off, cut down, killed, but for our sins, crushed. For our iniquities, Isaiah predicts. 
And then as John the Baptist puts it all together, he is to be that Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world that all of the lambs in Leviticus and through Israel's history killed on the altar were all anticipating the one day the God-man would come and die and take away their sins. And the proof that it all worked, that the price had been paid, that the sins were fully forgiven, and believing sinners are truly reconciled to God, the proof of it? This sacrifice, this crucified Savior, he's now alive, and he's emptied the tomb. Again, just as the Scriptures foretold, like we prayed this morning in Psalm 16, where King David speaks of the special Holy One, our Savior, who will never see corruption. He was never to rot. He was not going to remain in the grave, but he was going to rise. And seeing those linens not missing, not strewn about, but nice and neat, that was John's aha moment about the resurrection. The scriptures predicted it. Messiah was to suffer, and then there'd be glory, and here's the proof. Jesus is alive. The scriptures are true. And it's like I can think John's thinking, these scriptures are more true than I ever dreamed. So, I mean, Jesus' resurrection, the reality of his life now, strengthen your trust in this book, in these scriptures, even when we don't understand them all. None of the promises of God contained in those holy scriptures, you see, they will never change, they will never fail, they will never fall, none of them. And why is that? Because there is an eternal, ever-living Savior in heaven who's going to oversee the trip of all of them. It's like a package that you're getting from Amazon, right? You can pull up their app and you can figure out where the UPS driver is. Well, Jesus is overseeing everyone who trusts in him from heaven, from stop to stop to stop until they get to glory. And he will not entrust that package, your soul, to anyone else. So he rose from the dead to see it through that every promise of God would be brought to its end. That's why the author of Hebrews puts it like this, talking about Jesus. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost, to the very end, those who draw near to God through him. Why? Because he always lives to make intercession for them. He's always alive to personally see that every one of God's people gets to heaven just like he promised. That's the surety of our salvation. That's the truthfulness, the surety of this word. So friends, Christ rose from the dead to confirm to you this word, this book even. Don't ignore it. Don't create excuses to doubt it or neglect it or to go around it. It's the one place to give you the unchanging truth, the most vital truth about your very soul and most importantly about God himself. And so friends, why are we slow to believe this book, to understand this word? And in counseling and talking with others, and I've seen it far more than once, could it be that you really don't want it to be true? Because you realize if it's true, you have to change. If it's true that Jesus really died for sin and rose from the dead, if it's true that the Bible is accurate, then no doubt about it, you need to be living differently. 
I need to change. Well, know this. That's something you cannot even actually do on your own, but there's a comfort in that because I know someone who can, and he's alive, working through this living word. Look to him. Second, his resurrection lifts our grief by the promise of his presence. Verses 11 to 18, the mark of the resurrection, it lifts, transforms our grief by his very presence, by this promise that he is with us to never leave us or forsake us. And this fruit of the resurrection surfaces as we return to Mary, who's inconsolable at the tomb. We look at verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And as she looks, what does she see? She finds still more. Verse 12, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had laid, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, this seems to be what's defining Mary at this moment. Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and they do not know where they have laid him. Now, if we take John's account and his gospel and compare it with the other gospels, the other three, then we understand this is probably not the first time that Mary has actually talked to angels that morning. Matthew and Mark and Luke record that when Mary and the other women first approached the tomb and they saw it rolled away, there were angels there declaring the truth of what's here, namely that Jesus isn't. Why? Because that's the place where you go find dead people and he's not alive. The angels tell her he is risen. And yet she doesn't understand. She doesn't get it. So she runs to get Peter and John, and that's where we pick it up now with John's story. The point is, the angels had already told her Jesus was alive. He's not fit for the grave. And at the very least, Mary should be connecting the dots like John did, right, in seeing the linen cloth and the faith cloth all rolled up. This isn't a robbery. This isn't a crime scene. Nobody has stolen Jesus. He walked out on his own. But she doesn't get it. Her grief is too great, too strong, it's too overwhelming. And I think that makes sense of what can happen next. In verse 14, as she's stooping and looking in the tomb, she hears something behind her. And so then she turns around and she looks. And it's Jesus standing right in front of her. But she doesn't recognize him. Either from the tears in her eyes or, or maybe the sun is behind Jesus. Whatever is going on is a silhouette perhaps. She cannot recognize who it is. But Jesus asks her in verse 15, Woman, why are you weeping? And whom are you seeking? Again, you see, her grief defines her. When they see her, you're the weeping woman. She's inconsolable. She doesn't get it. Even as Jesus is now speaking to her, she doesn't get it. She thinks a gardener is talking to her. If you took his body somewhere, just let me know. I'll go get it. I'll bring it back. Some suggest this must mean that Mary was a woman of means, that she could then pay somebody to take care of the body and bring it, uh, which may actually be true. But I I don't think the point is that she's all that clear-headed at this moment. Uh, She's grieving. She's desperate. She would do anything to have Jesus' body back. And then... The one before her mentions one little word, her name, Mary. 
And then this happens. Verse 26. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Just how personal is that word? She'd already been talking to him, but when he says her name, the same way he has said it for years, the name of affection, the name of my friend, the name of my Lord to her, speaking it the very same way, she recognizes in a moment, my Lord, you're here. My Savior, you're alive. And with that one personal word, the grief is gone. Presumably, as she then clings to Jesus, whom she finds not only his body, but he's alive. And I'm sure she's grabbing onto him like, I'm never letting go now. But it's not quite happily ever after yet. He's got some news for her and a job for her to do. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father. I'm going to my God and your God. You can't stay with me right now, understand that. But notice in this message that he gives to the disciples, or even when he calls the disciples, just shows this closeness, this familial language, this kind of love communicated when he just spoke her word of her name, Mary. He says, go to my brother's. And tell them, I'm ascending to my father and your father. See, we share the same father now. And go tell them, I'm ascending to my God and your God. I'm uniting you to worship with me now. In other words, Mary, do you understand what's gone on? Do you understand what's happened with my death and resurrection? I have made my disciples brothers and sisters. I've made you adopted into the family of God such that he is our father and I am your brother. Fully adopted in, fully shown grace, fully shown the favor of God. So this also means that whatever grief has separated us from God, that's ultimately what death is, isn't it? It's the ultimate separation, the ultimate severing. But whatever death or grief has separated us from God, it's now put away. Because nothing can separate us from Him now that we are family. So to apply this truth of the resurrection to our griefs, and a couple things happen. First, whatever your grief is, so I don't know how the Lord brought you here this morning, Like, why you need to hear John 20 in God's providence. Why you need to hear this text. But whatever grief you have brought on your heart into this room, know this, brothers and sisters. Because of the resurrection, whatever that grief is, it is temporary. It will pass away. We even hear it in the promise of the resurrected life before God. When we are in that new Jerusalem and we see our Savior face to face, when God dwells with us because we are His, He is our Father, this is His family, what's He going to do? Revelation 21.4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Why? Because those former things have passed away. Why? Because Jesus put them to death when he rose from the dead. The root of our griefs, separation, pain, it's all going to be put away. It's all going to be undone. Why? Because death could not hold our brother any longer. And Christ will raise us from the dead. So whatever grief you've been carrying on your heart, even this very morning, know this, you only have to carry it a little bit longer. That grief then does not define you. It's going to go away. It does not dominate you. If you're in Christ, what defines you is He does, and He's alive. But second, as it relates to that, not only are our griefs going to one day be put away, but Jesus' resurrection teaches us that these pains, as we've already said, don't need to dominate us even right now. It's not merely future, but it has impact for how you live now. Because whatever grief you're carrying, it's mixed with a hope for the future. That colors the way you even grieve now. That's why Paul can tell the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says, we believers, we grieve and groan, but not as the world does. Why? Because they grieve without any hope. This is it. This is their life. It's death, and they think at best it's nothing. But we grieve with hope because of the surety of the resurrection. So you see this in the Christian life. you got two things working together. you got grief with hope. Or Paul puts it like this to the Corinthians. He says, as a Christian, we can be sorrowful, filled with grief. This is a hard world to walk through, and yet we are always rejoicing. How does that happen? I just love the Bible's realism in that. It's not pie-in-the-sky, shallow, fake smiles. Our faith acknowledges the true pain, grief, loss, separation of this world. And it's not just then slapping a Bible verse on it and it makes all the pain go away. That's why Jesus wept at Lazarus' tomb, don't you know? He was really grieved. He saw the pain of sin and death. He, He saw the separation. And so in that way, even here, Mary should not be rebuked for her pain or her tears. But... We can grieve and weep with hope because the grave, the pain, the tomb is not how the story ends for the family of Jesus Christ because our big brother rose from the dead. So dear Christian, grieve, weep, cry over your loss, but don't let that loss define you. The life of your big brother Jesus does. And he will never leave us. Third, Jesus' resurrection answers our fears with peace. See this in verses 19 to 23. We see this as the disciples uh, meet the risen Jesus. So we had looked at Mary. She was the first one to see Jesus resurrected. And now Jesus is going to appear to the disciples. So we turn to them. Now where are they? They're not weeping and waiting at the tomb. They were hiding, afraid, behind locked doors. Let's look at verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. So they've locked themselves up. They're barricading themselves. They're terrified. They're scared. Now why? 
Well, it says because they're afraid of the Jews. Why would they be scared of the Jews? Well, if you don't remember, the Jews just killed their leader and Messiah a couple days ago. And more than this, we know from reading Matthew's gospel, the story of Jesus' resurrection is getting out, and they're going to assume who took the body out. These guys, the disciples, let's go get them. They're going to hunt us down. They might have thought the the threat was over. But now that there's a story that Jesus rose from the dead, these rumors, as the Jewish leaders would see it, are getting out, they see they're even in worse trouble than they thought. So now they're terrified. Whatever the case, they're hiding, they're in a locked room, they're scared. And then Jesus suddenly just appears in the room and says, Boo! Well, not boo, though that would scare me plenty, I'm sure. Look at verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Not fear, not terror, peace, the peace of God. Indeed, it might be startling to have someone arrive unannounced in a locked room. But its kindest face and the greatest message turned their fears to peace. Actually turned them to joy. We read at the end of verse 20. Jesus showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad that they saw the Lord. They went from fearful terror to rejoicing, delighting. But not only does Jesus give them peace, but he sends them out to bring peace to others, right? Look now to verse 21. Jesus said to them, peace be with you. That is again. As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. Uh, This peace I've given to you, I'm sending it out to others through you. And it's pictured there in verse 23 where he says, receive the Holy Spirit. This is anticipating what's going to happen at what we call Pentecost in just a few days. Now, the Holy Spirit's going to empower you to be my messengers, my witnesses to this fact. I rose from the dead, and that means you're forgiven. And that means so are anyone who trusts in me. That's behind what he says in verse 23 when he says, what's your message? If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. Why? Because they've trusted in Jesus' death and resurrection. And if you will hold forgiveness for many, it is withheld. Why? Because they won't believe in Jesus' death for their sins and the resurrection. In other words, I'm sending you out with the Holy Spirit's power to tell others that God who you have rebelled against offers you peace. And the conditions are trust in his son and his sacrifice. Because you understand what are our sins? Our countless innumerable sins of thought and deed, what are they? But they are our vain attempts to declare war against God. To say, no, I'm going my own way. I'm going to do it my way. We're rejecting him. We're throwing our fist at him. We aren't going to instead say, I'd rather go to war with you than be on your team. And at that, for every rebellious deed that we've done, it is like the bomb of God's justice is poised to just drop right on your head. 
And at that moment, that's where Christ comes in and he says, step aside, I'm taking this one for you. I'm taking your sins for you. He went to war on the cross for your sins. He was cursed. He was punished instead of you if you trust him. And he went to war and he won. He was bruised, yes. He didn't come out unscathed, but he came out alive to declare, war is over and any that look to me, there is now peace with God. Be reconciled to him is the word now. Trust in him. Not because when you go to church, even on Easter, not because you read your Bible every day, not because you do good things and are better than most people. No, the one reason you can have peace is because you rest in what Christ has done. That's a peace that rests on him and not on you. That's a peace that's unchanging. It's constant. It's eternal. And so Paul talks about in Romans chapter 5 when he says, Therefore, since we have been justified, declared righteous by faith, that is, not by what we do, then you can know we have peace with God continually right now, but one way through our Lord Jesus Christ, he says. So do you feel that peace this morning? Do you feel that peace in your soul? Does your soul feel like a calm lake? Or did you come in here and it felt more like a tempestuous storm? You're being tossed to and fro. Well, the word this morning is, can you not look to that empty tomb and see there's peace here? Can you not look to that empty, yes, bloody cross, but see that it is empty, the price is paid, and there is peace? Can you not see that even as you might be, so to speak, hiding behind locked doors, fearing man, fearing judgment, can you not hear his word, the war's over, peace be to you? Do you not see he has won your peace? But if we do not continually remind our souls and remind one another of these things, we will be like them, hiding in rooms, locked up, cowering and afraid. When he says to you, but I've bought peace. A peace that this world can never take away, even if they take away your life. To then steal from the hymn, what peace we so often forfeit when we forget the empty tomb and we fail to take everything to our living and risen Lord in prayer. He answers our fears with his peace. Finally, too, Jesus' resurrection humbles our pride. He humbles our pride. We see this at the end of the chapter. But he does so maybe not in the way you think. The resurrection of Jesus crushes our pride. It humbles our pride. It obliterates it. It confronts our brains. It it confronts our logic. It confronts our assumptions about what can even happen in this world. And he's going to do that with this guy Thomas. But what finally clicks, breaks it for him, is maybe not what you think. So, we just saw the scene. Jesus appears in this locked room, and it says the disciples were there, but evidently not everybody was there. Uh, Thomas had stepped out, evidently. He wasn't there. You can imagine, like, did he just step out for a few moments? And then he comes back, and everybody's, like, totally glad and joyful, and they're like, Thomas, you won't believe what we saw, and you're right. And he's like, you're right, I won't. Jesus was here. Sure he was. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Such that you can now call him, often is, Doubting Thomas. Maybe we could call him Skeptical Thomas, Not Gullible Thomas. You might say that he is Thomas the empiricist. He is Thomas the scientist who doesn't only need to see it to believe it, but he's got to touch it. He's got to feel it. He needs all the sensory options he has behind him to ever believe. And that's what he says basically in verse 25. But he said to them, that is Thomas back to the disciples, unless I see in his hands the mark and the nails and place my finger into the mark and place my hands in his side, I will never believe. And actually, in the Greek, there's no stronger way to say it. I will never, ever believe unless Jesus meets my conditions that I can verify he rose from the dead. That's a pretty bold claim, isn't it? Really an arrogant one. And yet I've heard it numerous times in sharing the gospel with folks. I think I even set up myself as an unbeliever. God, if you're real... Show yourself right now, and then I'll believe in you. You ever said anything like that? God, write it in the sky. Send a thunderclap. I'm ready to believe. Just give me the proof that I want. Then I'll believe in you. As if there's like this tiny ant roaming around in my yard who's just defiantly announcing his unbelief in you. I don't believe in humans. I've never seen them. No one lives in that big greenhouse over there. I've never seen people walk in and out of there. When you might, unbeknownst to you, just walk out to the mailbox and squish him, and you would even know it. Except that if you can believe this, the gap between God's power and you are far greater than me and any ant in my front yard. And more than this, God has given loads of evidence to his divine nature and power that he exists. It's called creation. From ants to zebras to snails to supernovas, those didn't come out of anywhere. That is nowhere. They came from him. And they are testimonies that you need to worship your creator, bow to him, and actually you've defied him. And what do we do by default? We stick our fingers in our ears like a little child, plugging him up, pretending, I can't hear creation. You're not real. As if that changes anything about what is. I'll believe in God, my way, my terms. And for Thomas, that meant I don't, can't just see the scars, I got to put my finger in them. Now, if you were Jesus, which that's always a bad question probably to ask, but humor me for a moment. If you were Jesus... How would you respond to this kind of defiant, distrusting disciple? A guy you had invested at least three years of your earthly ministry in, that he walked with you repeatedly, he did miracles in your name over and over again, and now he's like, yeah, the whole Jesus thing, that was a flop. That wasn't real. That's not true. How would you handle that if you were Jesus? Would you cut your losses and say, well... 10 out of 12 ain't bad. His unbelief, his pride is just too great. I I can't deal with him anymore. Or would you come back to the room? This is probably what I would do, and so you're going to be really glad that I'm not Jesus. 
come back to the room and judge him on the spot. How dare you doubt me with all I've given you, all I've done for you, all the times I taught you the promises, and you keep throwing yourself, throwing it up in my face like this? Well, after hearing Thomas's defiant conditions, remember in a locked room where Jesus wasn't present, and yet Jesus heard it, and that's evidence from what happens. So after hearing those defiant conditions, Jesus waits eight days to deal with Thomas. And then on the eighth day, he again appears in the middle of a locked room, and he announces peace to everyone there, but then he turns to Thomas. And if you're Thomas, if you're me, you're saying, "Uh uh-oh. I'm sure ashamed, much like Peter would have been when the Lord appeared to him. You know, when you're doing something, saying things you know you shouldn't be doing, and then the person you're talking about walks up, or your parent walks in on you, your loved one, and you're like, you are dead to rights. And then he turns to you, and what does Jesus have to say? Verse 27. Then Jesus said to Thomas, Thomas, put your finger here. Thomas, see my hands. Put put out your hand and place it into my side. Don't disbelieve, but believe, Thomas. And that's when it clicked for Thomas. That's when his arrogant defiance, his hard and unbelieving heart gets broken. And he has the right response. Verse 28, at this, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. This really is the climax of the John's gospel, right? This book opens with the clearest declaration of who Jesus is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and that Word, Jesus Christ, was God. And here it is at the end of the gospel showing you this guy who falls on his face and says, you, Jesus, are my Lord and my God, you're my life. But what was it about Jesus' words that changed Thomas? Because we notice, we don't hear about, Thomas doesn't have to go touch the wounds to believe, like he had said. That wasn't needed anymore. Because he got something from Jesus he recognized instantly, that he had tasted so many times before. He was caught He was exposed. Jesus suddenly appeared to him. And what did Jesus give him? Mercy. Just come touch it. He didn't even have to. He knew Jesus, by his most recognizable attribute, the mercy that he had tasted from Jesus as the Lord so many times before. He knew he was being proud. He knew he was being defiant. He knew he didn't deserve to have Jesus come to him. And Jesus comes anyway. And so this proud scientist, you might call him, gets humbled, becomes a believer, most of all, not by facts probably, but actually by mercy. Now the facts are there too, don't get me wrong. And Christianity is the one world religion that actually depends upon very facts of history, such that in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then Christianity is futile, it's meaningless, it's worthless, we're wasting our time. But if he has risen from the dead, then our faith is anything but meaningless. Why? 
because I know my Redeemer lives. Now in our day, He's giving us a greater blessing than maybe appearing to us or giving us the evidences we might expect or demand. And we see that in verse 29. Jesus said to him, to Thomas, Have you believed because you've seen me? Well, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Now, make no mistake, that does not mean there are not innumerable evidences to the fact of Jesus' resurrection. He is indeed alive from the dead, seated in heaven. He's just not going to appear and show himself to you. Because actually, the next time he's coming back, then it's too late. He's offering you the opportunity to come and find mercy now by trusting in him now, not by seeing in him, but believing in him and the testimony of his word. And if you're like, I don't know if I can believe in what I don't see, we'll see the effects of his resurrection. And chief among them is this, the changed lives of those men who were once doubters, who were once skeptics, who were once deniers and betrayers of Jesus, once they saw the resurrected Christ, they were transformed. As one pastor so well summarized, a brief survey of ancient Christian tradition reveals that Peter, the betrayer, Andrew, Philip, James, the son of Alphaeus, they were all crucified for their faith in Christ, that he rose from the dead. Bartholomew was whipped to death and then crucified. James, the son of Zebedee, was beheaded, as was Paul. Thomas, key, was stabbed with spears. Mark was dragged to death through the streets of Alexandria. And James, the half-brother of Jesus, was stoned by the order of the Sanhedrin. Others, including Matthew, Simon the Zealot, Thaddeus, Timothy, and Stephen, were also all killed for their unwavering commitment to the Lord. And I will add, because they knew he would raise them from the dead as he lives. Confronted by the risen Jesus and by his mercy, doubting Thomas became missionary Thomas to India, evangelist Thomas, church planning Thomas, and he became Thomas the martyr because he knew his Savior lives and that for any in Christ, death is not the end. Actually, to live is Christ and to death is gain. Why? Because it means more of the risen Christ. In view of then this, this testimony to Jesus' resurrection, what more can we say than the way John ends the book or this chapter? Verse 30, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, so that you may believe, or you could render that, keep believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life, and I would add forever in his name. Let's praise him for this and walk in this joyful truth. Let's pray together. Jesus, it is an astounding thing that we can pray to you. We're reminded as Thomas in a locked room, even Might we say blaspheming? You heard him. And then when you came to meet him, you met him with mercy. What a gracious Lord you are. Really, we say together that you are our Lord and our God. We worship you. So Holy Spirit, use this word to draw your people evermore unto Christ. 
that we would walk in faithfulness, that we would not be governed by grief or fear, but we would walk in hope in the future that is ours in Christ, for the church that he's bought with his blood. And it's for his name we pray. Amen.